Welcome to the 2012 Claire Burton Memorial Lecture for Love. I'm Jill Singer, I lecture in journalism here at RMIT in the School of Media and Communication. And I'm very pleased to welcome our guest speakers, Jane Caro and Catherine Fox, and our Deputy Vice-Chancellor, Professor Jill Palmer, who's also RMIT's representative on the ATN's Committee for the Women's Executive Development Program. This afternoon's lecture is one of five events across the country that are named in honour of the late Dr Claire Burton and commemorate her work in the field of gender equity. The series is made possible with the generous support of sponsors and they include the Equal Opportunity for Women in the Workplace Agency, a long-standing partner, the Western Australian Department for Communities and the South Australian Minister for the Status of Women, the Honourable Gail Gago. Now, the plan is that Jane and Catherine will speak for about half an hour, and then we'll open it up for a Q&A and commentary. Uh, I did say, I, well, I am kind of meant to be moderating, but I'm really hoping that it will be absolutely immoderate. Uh, to start proceedings, I'm pleased to introduce RMIT's Deputy Vice-Chancellor, Professor Jill Palmer. Thank you. I think I first ought to say that the Vice-Chancellor, Margaret, would be here if she could talk today, but she, she's taller than me, as you can see. <laughs> can I... Uh, it's my job to not only welcome you, as, as, as Jill has, but also to say a little bit about the lecture series and to welcome our guests. And um, let me first wonder how many people in the room now actually knew Claire Burton, because I came to Australia in the mid-80s, 1984 5 uh, going into uh, Queensland, but in fact any of the eastern states, you'd not be able to miss her. She was a very, very dominant and important force in uh, the movement of women into uh, senior positions. She, uh, as you might know, her PhD, of course, was on um, um, feminism, Subordination, feminism, and social theory, just as it's, it's the sort of generation where our vice chancellor's PhD, you might know, was also on gender. Um, Claire was a very important part of the movement for equal pay, for example, and was publishing significant books in the 80s and 90s. So I knew her because you really couldn't be a senior academic or an academic working in this sort of field and not know uh, Claire quite personally at that time. So around the room, am I uh, sufficiently old that we're a fading group, or how many people would have known her? It's just, yes, but not it, interesting. Um, so yeah, I am getting old. Um, but it's, it's, I think, um, because she was such a dominant force, just to say a little bit about her, um, apart from those books, um, Equal Pay Debate, her book in 87 on women's worth, pay equity and job evaluation, she was a senior figure and was used in the public service, public sector appointments as gender became to be important and as legislation started rolling out on these issues. She was a, um, a public sector appointment in New South Wales, Queensland and Canberra. So her sudden and untimely death in, 80, no, in 98 was a shock to everybody. She was in the middle of major things that she was doing in this front. And as you would know, uh, the Claire Burton Memorial 
lecture series was introduced not long afterwards as a way of continuing the work that she was in the middle of doing when she, when she passed away. As a memorial to her, and that's what these lectures are, and this is the 12th, um, I just want to read out to you something that was read out last, last night at the first of these lectures. So the Claire Burton Memorial Lectures are run by the ATN, the um, Technology Universities, the five of us, one per state. And uh, we, we each year have um, somebody giving the Claire Burton Lecture. We're very pleased this year to have two people, two very eminent people. And they will be going around the states doing this. They started last night in New South Wales. Last night apparently was Claire Burton's, or would have been Claire Burton's 70th birthday. And as a result, there is a, a statement written by one of her very close friends, which I'll read out to you. It is, in fact, from our Governor-General, Quinton Bryce. So you can see the generation of women moving in and saying things about gender that this represents. And so, as it was read last night, I'll read it tonight as well. Preface for the Claire Burton Lecture. My friends, on the occasion of the 2012 Claire Burton Memorial Lectures, I remember with love a friendship that was important and influential across my life, and indeed remains so. It was my great privilege to share with her a professional and personal engagement over 20 years, to walk and work together on issues of the greatest moment for social justice and human rights. I recall so well her vigorous and unrelenting adherence to the finest principles, her pursuit of equality and reform, her advocacy for women. First and foremost, Claire was a scholar, and a scholar of the highest order. The breadth of her publications was extraordinary, each one of them soundly based, each one of them underpinned by strong commitment, each one of them thoroughly practical, and all, and all far-reaching in their influence. As I say, a major movement and what we've almost forgotten, the equal pay campaigns. These underpinned her robust and vocal participation in conferences, lecture series, and symposia. For all of us in the women's movement, her voice was one of the best known, most genuine and trustworthy in articulating what mattered and what would drive us forward. As I shared the stage with her on many occasions and watched from the audience, I marveled again and again at the tenacity of her intellect, the power of her argument, the persuasion of her language, the courage of her conviction. The memorial lectures will continue to be an enriching contribution to her memory and to the fields in which she so faithfully labored. Thank you to the Australian Technology Network of Universities, Wexted Program and other universities for continuing to organize and host the lectures. So as you can see, within Australia, I think, we are commemorating somebody who is very fondly remembered for having an amazing impact and making sure that universities took seriously this area, did a lot of the work that was necessary for the legislation and the public policy that then followed on. So having said a little bit about Claire, I just want to say a little bit about uh, the Wexted, the ATN system, which has been developed and which runs a number of things to encourage women's participation and the role of women in universities. And I suspect most of you know it, but in case you don't, not only does Wexted, which is the uh, ATN network of women for development, not only do they run this annual Claire Burton lecture, and I will note, uh, continue to ask for funds for the Claire Burton lecture, because it's uh, currently there's a um, Claire Burton 
scholarship, which is currently given biannually. If we raise more money, it might be annual. Um, and there's also the Wexted Runs training programs, which have anybody here been on the Wexted Women? Every year we can send a few there. Thank you, a few people. So to the others know that you can apply for um, leadership training out of the Wexted funds and system. So Wexted is important. Claire Burton's part of this and is also important. Can I just say, and can we congratulate, I don't know if she's here, Belinda Johnson was this year's Claire Burton uh, scholarship winner. And she's an RMIT person, so is she here? No, she's not. But if anybody knows her, tell her we're very proud to have the RMIT person winning the Claire Burton scholarship. So as part of the ATN, RMIT, I think, has always been quite interested in women's leadership. I think uh, with uh, several vice-chancellors as women, uh, we are across the world. Um, it's not that common still to have senior women in leadership. In fact, there was a fascinating meeting recently where our new chancellor, who is a male, realized he was in a senior meeting with nothing but women and felt quite unfortunate, quite, uh, quite, quite noticed the difference. And we were all able to say we've been through this many times. <clears throat> this, is, this is the way the world changes. So the ATN has got uh, a something of a reputation here. I think it's important it continues, and this Claire Burton Memorial Lecture is part of it. Today's lecture is what you're here for, not, um, and I think we are very lucky to have a dual act this evening. We're very lucky to have Jane Carrow and, and Catherine Fox with us today. You will notice outside their numerous publications, both um, Non-fiction and fiction, I notice, and a range of areas, in particular, of course, women's issues, but not just women's issues. So let me just say a little bit. Um, Jane wears many hats. You'll have seen from the material that's around. Uh, author, lecturer, commentator, columnist, workshop facilitator, speaker, mum, broadcaster, award-winning advertising writer. A successful career in advertising, she now runs her own communications consultancy and lectures at the University of um, Western Sydney, published four books. I think, are they all out there on the At least three of them. Yeah, yeah. Catherine F Fox is also, of course, a writer um, and has worked since 1989 for the Australian Financial Review. She publishes the weekly corporate women's column in that very prestigious uh, newspaper. She's the deputy editor of, the, of their Boss magazine and since joining them has had a variety of positions in that newspaper, has won many uh, awards for journalism, and is also the author or co-author of three books. So we're very pleased to have uh, two very able and well-written, uh, well if you like, authors. The book, presumably, that we're talking about today, which is out there for sale if people want it, is the, the F word, what we have learnt, how we have learnt to swear by feminism. And they're going to tell us about doing it for love. So please welcome with me, Jane and Catherine. Thank you very much. And thank you for having us here at RMIT. We've been admiring the campus. It's very lovely. Um, I also wanted to thank um, the wonderful Anna Reader, who's based at UTS in Sydney and has been coordinating um, two rather busy women, um, one of whom has two daughters, twins, doing their final exams, Italian today, and where am I? Here. <laughs> I'm very good at managing stress. So, um, but, but Anna's been fantastic, and we're really honoured 
to be doing this series of talks. We really are delighted. Um, I haven't, I didn't meet uh, Claire Burton, but I had heard of her for many years. So it's it's a great honour to be able to honour her and to continue this important discussion. Um, I think Claire, in fact, from what I've heard of her, um, would be proud to see the depth and nuance of the research into women and work these days and quite rightly appreciate that the progress owes, in fact, much to her groundbreaking efforts and, in fact, the efforts of Quentin Bryce and, and many other women um, who, who went ahead of us in that sense. Claire particularly looked at things like merit systems and pay equity. Um, that that is now partly, um, you know, not partly, it's a topic of legitimacy in academia and indeed in the business sector now, I think, um, owes a lot to people like her. Um, today, Jane and I wanted to speak to you about the notion, I think, we think still widespread, that women work mainly for love and not for money. We believe there's a fascinating story in examining why women are still regarded as inherently motivated by caring and selflessness in all their activities, whether in paid work, in the community or elsewhere, uh, in the home, for example. While responsible men, of course, work for money, status and respect. Translated into some broader cultural beliefs, I think this is actually about who does the supportive sort of soft supplementary stuff versus the mainstream important work in the world. Um, at the time we were putting this together, it struck us as useful, timely, and, and a fascinating topic, um, but then became even more timely, we believed. Um, and touching on some of the overt and covert norms and stereotypes that continue to define women, their work, and their standing in society. Um, clearly, we've each come at it from, from different perspectives because of what we do, but um, we will be touching on um, some core themes. But first, I just thought, well, basically couldn't resist um, a few comments on the watershed moment that has brought the topic of women, leadership, and indeed workplaces onto the national agenda. The Prime Minister's recent speech about um, sexism and misogyny, which has left some scratching their heads in bewilderment, others fuming at, paradoxically, the injustice of it all, and many cheering here and internationally. The reception of her comments revealed a gap which I found fascinating as a journalist, between formal political commentary and the reality of working life for many women. And indeed, there were many men that I think found that the whole process very interesting, if, if not um, personally um, relevant. Um, but the ensuing debate, which at times devolved into the semantics of what do we mean by sexism or misogyny, also showed there's still a strong belief that the topic of gender equity is of special interest, a special interest, or a side issue to the important stuff about running the country. Um, this attitude is deeply familiar to me. Um, as, and I mentioned this when I was Q &A, on Q&A recently. Um, for more than two decades, if I've managed to get pinned down a CEO and talk to them about this issue, or indeed a senior executive or managing director, and ask them about the lack of women in their senior ranks, I was assured there simply was no problem. Um, that response, by the way, always reminded me of how I felt when um, I was first pregnant with my first child and a male doctor told me not to worry about childbirth. childbirth. It really didn't hurt that much. <laughs> he was wrong. Um, they would say, you know, if women wanted the top jobs, they'd get them. They just didn't want them, that the gender pay gap, well, that's just because women work part-time, and so on. Um, so Julia 
Gillard's comments, I felt validated the concerns and silent frustration of many women in, in all walks of life too, um, not just my classic readership for the column, which does tend to, of course, be in the white colour or professional area. Not entirely, but, but predominantly. Um, like other women who've tried to raise this issue, it was a genuine concern on many levels and for many women. I found it gratifying and vindicating to see the Prime Minister stand up for what she believed in and clearly condemned the extraordinary abuse that has been directed at her as the Prime Minister of this country. Uh, even down to, as a, as a colleague reminded me the other day, if you ever watched any of the press conferences, the way some of the junior journalists spoke to her was breathtakingly rude. Um, the lack of respect, extraordinary. Um, many businesswomen, I speak, and I speak to them all the time because I, I go to a lot of forums and meetings, um, also felt um, that it struck a chord. And they're not people who necessarily vote one way or the other. They just felt that the message was incredibly strong. Um, I also wanted to acknowledge the work of um, Anne Summers in, in um, actually researching and really looking at the level of abuse that was directed at the Prime Minister over the last couple of years and that very good speech that some of you may have read that she made quite recently called Her Rights at Work. Um, I was at a forum earlier this year where Anne was speaking um, and a woman in the audience in the Q&A got up and then said to her I wanted, she wanted to congratulate Anne on the work she'd done as a writer, political activist um, and indeed activist for women's rights over many decades. Anne responded by laughing and saying, no, it's self-interest. But it got me thinking about um, the fact that distinguished women like Claire Burton and like Anne um, have also inspired and led by example in their own dedicated research and writing on women and paid work, the double standards, the biases that are faced, and they've continued that on through their careers. Um, these distinguished women have helped to make it clear that our capacity to really contribute and be recognised in the work we do hinges on how women's efforts are judged and valued, and the gender effect, of course, on things like our status and our access to leadership roles. Clearly, this was no peripheral issue to them at, on any level. It was about the right for women's work to be taken seriously. Um, I've often heard my work on corporate women referred to as a special interest, or I've been told, oh, you must love that. This apparently justifies my investment in something which clearly other people either find irritating or old hat or whatever. Um, I'm not a fan of the expression post-feminist, by the way. I called that one a bit too early, I think. Um, it's as though this issue of equality for half the human race and nearly half the Australian workforce is a sidebar. Um, with little recognition, of course, that my gender, for example, continues to play a key role in not just how I am viewed and my identity is, is formed, but how my total contribution as a journalist is assessed. Um, no wonder I'm interested. In particular, I've been focusing in recent times on teasing apart um, the corporate rhetoric um, and the reality, and when I say reality, um, the experience, the demographic data and so on that we now have about women's workforce participation and, and exam examining what strikes me as a widening gap. Um, we actually, and this is why I wrote the book, Seven Myths About Women and Work. Um, during my career, I've spoken to many women, um, for, and again, from many different backgrounds, and I've been repeatedly struck by how their formal working lives, their paid working lives, and how they feel about their jobs, whatever they may be, simply don't stick to the script that, that is peddled about our, our efforts and the value that we bring. Sadly, however, tell women for long and often enough that what they do is somehow not up to scratch or they have a special female approach that 
just doesn't cut the mustard. Um, and they do start to believe that. Um, and also, of course, show them that mentioning sexism or calling it will actually get a bucket of bile tipped onto them, um, along with accusations of playing victim for their inadequacies and failures, can be slightly off-putting. Um, my observation, actually, after many years of business reporting and 30-plus um, years in the workforce, is that women discover over time there are clearly many informal and unhelpful assumptions made about why they are in paid work and the quality of what they do. These gendered assumptions clearly have, can have a major negative effect on their employment, their prospects, it can sometimes cut off their op options for promotion or for, for increasing their earnings. If I had a dollar for every angry woman I've heard fuming about give, being given a poor score in you know, a, a personal appraisal on um, leadership or networking um, and thus being overlooked for a new role while a young and less experienced man get, gets the job, um, I'd be a very wealthy woman. So my research on the seven myths, and in fact for the column, um, helps to reveal why the notion that women get a sufficient warm inner glow from helping others and don't need as much in the way of status or reward is still potent. I examined why women are often told they work in a meritocracy, so if they succeed or fail, that's, that's their fault. Um, they lack ambition, and if they had any, it clearly disappears once they give birth. Um, they are their own worst enemies, they should behave more like men to get ahead, um, and the time will heal all these irritating gender issues. We're also told regularly that there are not enough women um, that we don't have enough of the supply of qualified women for top jobs or indeed to, to move into different roles. This also feeds into a widely held belief that using things like quotas or indeed targets carries a real danger of tokenism and shock horror and I have had a finger wagging moment with a, a senior male who said, you know, things will go backwards because yeah, we've gone so far ahead, haven't we? So the idea women work for love and have a predisposition to care helps to reinforce many of the myths I realised as I was writing this speech. I think they're just part of that legacy of women's intrusion into the male domain of paid work where their presence has still not been by any means normalised. Um, it continues to be supported by the old-fashioned but still alarmingly widespread notion that women are kind of temporary workers or supplementing the maiden breadwinner uh, until they marry and tend to the family and then fall back into a part-time or mummy track. Or, of course, alternatively, risk becoming lonely, sad, work-obsessed spinsters. I'm surprised how much of this narrative I'm still hearing, and I'm hearing it from all age groups. If women return to work after kids, it is almost necessary to justify their presence as a sad consequence of the cost of paying off a home loan or other financial commitments. Their heart isn't really in it, the thinking goes, and they should be darn grateful to be allowed back into their jobs, of course. Their lack of seriousness, um, for example, being unavailable 24-7 as though anyone is, but that whole sort of presenteeism stuff, is seldom linked, of course, to the fact they continue to subsidise their partner's or husband's career by shouldering 80% of the domestic load, and that has not shift, shifted in the last 20 or so years. But just what does the research tell us about what motivates men and women in the workforce? It's a hot topic, and I do cover a lot of this uh, for Boss magazine, and over the years I've had the... Um, the distinction of interviewing a host of the management gurus, Tom Peters, Jim Collins, Gary Hamill, John Cotter, Charles Handy, all of them. Um, I've written many features for the magazine about what motivates us at work and why. Um, and since the days of Frederick Taylor and Taylorism and the whole um, Henry Ford production line, we've, we've heard about motivation. It's the, the holy grail, of course, for business. Um, always eager to work out where to flick the switch to get some more out of us. 
these days the talk's changed a little bit. It's about employee engagement, a search for meaning, intangibles, inclusive corporate cultures and bringing the whole self to the job. I always thought I did, but there you go. I must have left some of myself behind. Um, while some of this rhetoric is greeted with some understandable scepticism, I think especially in Australia, um, there is some broad consensus that cash alone is not a sufficient incentive to make us work harder and better. I mean, clearly we all work for money, but to make us work harder. Although clearly, you know, it is part of the equation. So satisfying and stimulating work that is appropriately recognised and respected is what drives most of us. And it turns out the major studies on workplace motivation don't actually reveal a significant gender gap. Um, as I quoted in the book, there's quite a few local and international studies that show men and women have very similar ambition levels. Um, when they're asked privately, I would make a distinction there because I've written a whole chapter on ambition because I think women can run the risk of penalties when they express um, ambition sometimes. Um, they also leave their jobs in this country anyway for much the same reasons. So the four main reasons that are given by men and women for switching jobs are almost identical. So it's poor quality of work, um, lack of you know, um, for, uh, progress, um, bad management um, and so on. Particular issues labelled as female, the classic work-life balance, which I really don't like as an expression, but blending of, of paid and unpaid responsibilities, are actually much further down the list. They're well, well out of the uh, top ten. And both men and women bring them up as issues. I think a few more women than men, but they're certainly not in the top, top lot. Yet again, it is par for the course to hear women lack ambition um, and, of course, that they don't really want to move um, either up the ladder. I know we talk about linear careers a lot or, or just to have new uh, opportunities. Um, as I said, I think the latitude to express ambition and a desire to succeed, whichever way that should happen, um, or an, indeed an attachment to the job, to what you do, a real buzz from the job, not necessarily the people you work with or your employer, but, but what you do. Um, for women, I think it's often laden with judgment. Um, when women are expected to be caring and sharing colleagues, um, sometimes expressing that kind of passion for your work or a career can be fraught with danger. Um, as I said, once they become mothers, uh, many women find that they can run the gauntlet of condemnation if they don't express some form of socially acceptable desire to actually to be at home with the kids rather than the workplace, regardless of their income needs or their skill as patient child carers, which was never really my forte. Um, these expectations are simply not applied to men or fathers. This is also where that, that awful expression, having it all, is used as a weapon to remind women to get back into their box and stop being so greedy. Imagine telling a man with a job and a family he's having it all. It's ludicrous. Um, Anne-Marie Slaughter, the American writer who wrote an article in The Atlantic earlier this year, highlighted, I think, how even very smart women have been swept up and made to feel even guiltier by this particularly malicious and sexist rhetoric. I think it's time we just abandoned it. Um, women who run into the motherhood penalty soon understand they are transgressing the norms of the ideal worker, which I would suggest is still very much um, pegged around the male breadwinner model. And they may find their tenure uh, or indeed their career or whatever progress they're making um, will stall or be compromised whether they work full-time or part-time on their return to the workplace. Um, it's not great for women without families either, which I touched on earlier. They're sometimes portrayed as having made an unacceptable sacrifice, which again I don't think would be the kind of story we heard about single men or men without families. Their skill, career success or strong work work ethic are not viewed in quite the same way as their male peers, and they may even be seen as pitiful and a warning 
to young women. And I, I know this stuff isn't said formally, but I've heard younger women talking about that. It's abandoning love for money, and that's seen as an unacceptable trade-off. There are a few areas where the pitfalls of simply being female in the workplace is more apparent than the gender pay gap, something that Jane will also mention. Um, you may be well aware that at around 17%, it's about the same as it was 25 years ago. Um, it's a depressing reality. Um, in my book, I examine some of the sheer misinformation peddled about this topic, um, that the statistics not gathered appropriately and so on. Um, and I must say, I still think there's significant denial about um, the extent of the problem. When it comes down to it, pay scales differ for men and women in similar jobs and who have similar qualifications because, in fact, a series of highly subjective judgments are made about their skills and the value of what they do. These, I believe, are again underpinned by the notion that women don't work for the same reasons or rewards as men and can suffer from a series of female-only deficits. Too emotional. Too emotional. Has anyone noticed that anger's an emotion? I've worked with a lot of angry men. They're too detail-oriented. Since when was that a negative? But go figure. Um, they're too soft and so on. Of course, they are expected to use some of these talents, however, to nurture their workmates, but they're not usually rewarded for it. And in fact, they run the risk of being penalised if they don't conform to those stereotypes. In the area of pay negotiations, women's supposedly natural nurturing and softer side is used as a rationale for their failure to ask for a successful pay rise or garner a pay increase like their savvier male colleagues. Yet despite all the perceived wisdom on this topic, several major studies, and there's one um, I'd refer you to by the US firm Catalyst, which is called The Myth of the Ideal Worker, Does Doing All the Right Things Get Women Ahead? Uh, the answer to that is no. Um, have found a cohort of well-educated women with MBAs in workplaces that they studied did ask for pay rises just as often as their male peers and their negotiating skills and approach was very similar. Um, they fail, however, to achieve the same results. Uh, women walk a fine line in these negotiations. Too demanding, they're seen as unfeminine and pushy. Too quiet, they lack confidence. Probably not up to the, the next role anyway, not good at leadership. Um, and if they lack those female soft skills, even if they are technically proficient, they're also unlikely to win approval. Uh, it is rarely considered, of course, that women may fail to assertively and routinely ask for more pay in other, in other sort of um, echelons, despite the know-how, because it has been apparent to them for most of their lives that the care work, they are told, is what they naturally bring to the table, is expected but not usually rewarded. Things get really tricky the further up the ladder you go. Last year's um, study by Bain, consulting firm Bain and chief executive women in Australia, What Stops Women from Reaching the Top, Confronting the Tough Issues, found that men and women agreed on the four highest ranking attributes of leadership, problem solving, influencing, team building and networking. And I quote from the study, when ranking themselves on the same attributes, women undersell their capabilities, even though they are deemed to be equally as effective at, as men at delivering value for their organisations. Even worse, men completely agree with women. Men are twice as likely to rank other men over women as being highly effective problem solvers. Even though women are deemed to be as capable as men in delivering outcomes, the reality is that a woman's approach to achieving these outcomes is less likely to be valued. This is extraordinary. It's not about outcomes. It's about the way you approach them. Our research shows that women are perceived to be less effective at the leadership attributes that are most emphasised and rewarded by organisations. The stark fact is women's collaborating style, teamwork, etc., is not perceived to be as effective as men's promoting style, which they define as managing emotions and speaking up at meetings. 
Um, the findings reveal a self-fulfilling stereotype, very much active in the workplace and particularly among senior males, that it equates women with caring and support and men with doing and leading and therefore deserving high pay. There is an expectation a woman running a team, for example, will help others to shine, which of course is a desirable goal, but if she fails to do so, she can be condemned and called nasty names and earn a poor reputation, whereas men, I have not noticed being penalised on a regular basis for putting their own interests in front of the group. I've also long suspected that the naturalness of these supposed feminine caring skills, which I think can be a burden rather than an advantage in the workplace, needs some extra examination. I'm a major fan of last year's Claire Burton Memorial Lecture presenter, Cordelia Fine, who's now at Melbourne Business School, and her work examining spurious scientific claims about the differences between male and female brains. And I, if, you haven't, if you're not familiar with it, um, do have a look. It's very good. Oh, Cordelia, I oh, will thank you. <laughs> I'm a big fan. Um, <laughs> I have spoken to you on the phone, but I don't think we've met. Um, I'm going to quote from you. Sorry. Um, it seems to me that some of the skills long assumed to be inherent... Uh, in females are an acquired survival strategy. Um, before I quote Cordelia, I recently interviewed the wonderful US feminist and founder of the Women World Leaders Group, Laura Liswood, um, who again is just well worth listening to or reading. Um, and I reread her book, The Loudest Duck. You have to read the book to get that reference. Um, and came across this quote. She said, I have always been intrigued by where the concept of women's intuition comes from and whether there's evidence to support this notion. What a good question. She said, President Mary Robinson, the first woman president of Ireland, noted that women are often more likely to observe, have better listening skills, include others, not normally included in a conversation, and have more EQ, emotional intelligence, etc. However, um, Mary Robinson also told Laura that she felt that while traditionally these were considered female traits, she believes they're traits acquired by most groups or individuals who've been out of power historically. Um, those who have not been in power will develop those intuitive skills in the interests of survival. Um, Liswood goes on to say that l these learned behaviours and assumptions can be seen in other non-dominant groups whose success and survival dependent on knowing about the dominant group's habits. Those with less power are forced into this role. A similar dynamic existed in the relationship between coloniser and the colonised, master and slave, the served and the servant, or really any dominant and non-dominant group. Um, as Cordelia said last year, our minds are exquisitely socially attuned and surprisingly sensitive to gender stereotypes, men and women alike, clearly. When gender fades into the psychological background, men and women's behaviour becomes remarkably similar. That sounds remarkably sensible to me. And it highlights why the assumption we make we make about the nature and value of a supposed set of women-only skills in the workforce really needs to be reassessed because this is having a major impact on how much money we earn and our tenure and so on. Given all these factors, by the way, it's quite bizarre that one of the favoured corporate responses to poor gender equity is remediating women and advising them to behave like men. What a winning strategy. A woman behaving like a man and what man, for example, um, across the boardroom table is still a woman and probably a fairly conflicted and possibly rather uncomfortable one too. Um, while both Jane and I believe there are more similarities between the genders than differences, when you are routinely judge, judged against gendered expectations of high standards of caring and warmth, it sounds to me it'd be risky, if not downright dangerous, to advise a woman to man up. 
Double standards still abound when women are deemed to work for love. Paradoxically, the popular management literature is full of references to the need for a new style of executive who's a servant leader, um, strong communication and empathy skills and huge dollops of EQ. Many of these, in fact, are descriptions of archetypal female characteristics. But men tend to be complimented for showing their caring side in the workforce with their colleagues or when they do the daddy run and go off or go to soccer practice. I don't recall ever being congratulated for doing anything like that. If they don't regularly show their softer side, there are a few automatic penalties. Women, however, get routinely underpaid and overlooked for this behaviour, and if they dare to transgress and fail to exhibit it, they are quickly penalised. For example, the dreaded ladder pullers, the women who climb the ranks but fail to nurture and mentor those below, are held up as examples of what goes wrong for women in senior ranks. Yet men who behave like this, and I have personally observed many, are simply not noteworthy and certainly not punished in my experience. In fact, in some corporates, my um, observation is they are rewarded. Of course, as the management gurus and articles reiterate, caring for those around us in the workplace through supporting and advising and mentoring and so on is held up in most companies as an incredibly important part of the job. It's part of the sort of the values of, of companies. Unfortunately, there is much more lip service than reality about such skills. Our conclusion is that because these skills are continue to be associated pr primarily with women, they continue to be poorly recognised and rewarded. And, and kind of when you're on the career track and in a, in a fast-moving organisation, I think the blokes are well aware of that. A driven, ambitious and assertive woman who makes no bones about her desire to lead is also in danger, um, likely to fall foul of stereotypes and often be viewed as cold and steely. Um, is it any surprise women find it difficult and time-consuming to negotiate workplace dynamics, to be recognised and rewarded for what they do, or that they struggle to articulate their motivation or satisfaction in their work when they don't stick to the well-worn story? Given the penalties they face for stepping outside the boundaries, women often do conform to the stereotypes and prop up the myths. Who could blame them? The funny thing is that just like men... Women in the workplace work for, as we've said, and are motivated by a variety of reasons, but their basic reason is to earn a decent living. And fear of losing their livelihood means women often find they have no choice but to be complicit with the idea they are biologically motivated more by caring and love than money or status. No matter how well qualified, women in paid work thus face a difficult trade-off. Encouraged to work for love in their jobs and at home and in the community and be good team players, but then facing a very real risk of failing to be valued or seen as serious workers with management or leadership potential. Well, look, everyone knows that we need to love, care and support others. That's why I'm in Melbourne and my daughters are sitting exams in Sydney. I'm not guilty. I'm fine. Um, whether we're at home or at work. But not everyone is actually expected to do it. Um, far too often, women fall into the role of supporting and enabling others who get on with the real work. I think it's time we lifted this burden from women and found a fairer model that values everyone's efforts without the gender blinkers. In short, it's time we shared all the work and I'd like to ask the question, shouldn't everything be 50-50? And if not, why not? Now I'll hand over to Jane. I will be the shortest person at this podium today. Um, I'm starting on a really positive note. According to a recent study... 66% of Australian women would rather receive a, prom a promotion than a marriage proposal. 
wise women. But this is not just an interesting bit of trivia. This is a revolutionary change because what it indicates is that Australian women are at last valuing money over love. For generations, maybe even millennia, we divided the accepted spheres of the genders into the public and the private, the personal and the political, the nurturing and the remunerated, those who worked for love and those who worked for money. Women were venerated as the angels of the house, romanticised as graceful, beautiful, self-sacrificing saints who kept the home fires burning for their husband and children. Even a tough old battle axe like Florence Nightingale, who single-handedly not only created the modern nursing profession, but reformed the hospital's hygiene and sanitation systems, yes, I mean ditches and drains, across the British Empire, was sanctified and trivialised as the lady of the lamp. She also did her extraordinary work as a volunteer, in other words, for love. Until terrifyingly recently, as Catherine was saying, women were seen as being motivated by entirely different reasons than men. Men did things for rational reasons, women for emotional ones. Actually, I don't know why I said until terrifyingly recently, I hear that all the time. Um, Women were motivated either by the love of self, vanity, or by the love of others, sacrifice. Trapped by the ancient Madonna or whore dichotomy that can be defined as both the light and dark side of love. The Madonna represents mother love, pure, ethereal and saint-like, a creature to be venerated and adored from a distance. The whore represents sexual love, earthy, seductive, hypnotic and wicked, a creature to be enjoyed and then discarded and blamed. And I use the word creature here deliberately. Neither of these archetypes is human. In fact, they have little to do with real flesh and blood individuals at all. They're all about how women are seen by men. This is what we mean when we talk about women as object rather than subject. We're still largely seen in the context of other people's lives, mostly men's lives, rather than at the centre of our own. The recent glaring disconnect, as Catherine mentioned as well, between women's visceral responses to Julia Gillard's creed occur about sexism and misogyny, a response felt around the world, and the male-dominated mainstream Australian media's dismissive response to the same moment, is all about the blindness many still have to women being at the centre of their own lives. The unmediated access women suddenly have to the public conversation, though, via social media, which I find just so exciting I'm nearly jumping out of my skin, hash destroy the joint being a powerful example, is becoming as powerful a liberator in its own way, I think, as the invention of the pill. Both have brought feminism roaring back onto centre stage. And isn't it exciting to see Tony Abbott outed as a feminist? We really know we've won the war when that happens, in my view. As a society, we still struggle with seeing women as entirely human. And it is interesting to speculate if this is because, as love objects, women are seen as valuable only in relation to others, not simply as themselves. As Catherine pointed out, women as a whole have been seen as the servant gender, as slightly lesser men. This view of us as existing only to serve the needs of more important others, husbands and children certainly, but also parents, brothers, charities, communities, the church, the lord of the manor, the shopkeeper, the john, the pimp and the brothel, has meant that we are not used to taking women seriously as individual human beings with the same rights and responsibilities as everyone else. For centuries, we've emphasised the differences between the sexes. While not denying the obvious differences, I think Peter Slipper knows what they are, 
Um, I think Catherine and I are now making a plea for us to begin emphasising our similarities, going from vive la différence, if you like, to vive la similarité, and I'm sorry about my shocking French accent. But why? Isn't difference the spice of life, yin and yang, what makes the world go round? Maybe, but the trouble with the idea of equal but different, the exact phrase used to justify apartheid in South Africa, by the way, is that it tends, out, tends to work out really well for the equal but pretty bloody lousy for the different. And when we talk about the differences between the sexes, we make no mistake. We mean women are the different ones, that they are different from men, never the other way around. The idea that women are different, naturally softer, more nurturing, more collaborative, more caring, all euphemisms for more loving, in my opinion, better at detail, read, better at the boring, repetitive, low-status, poorly-paid jobs, I think that's what detail is really code for, um, is still used to explain why they are paid less, own less, and apparently don't want the top jobs. The stereotype of the gender that is motivated primarily by love creates a handy excuse for not taking women's contributions seriously. Hugh Mackay, and if you haven't read his latest book, I, can I recommend it, in his book, What Makes Us Tick, lists the ten desires that need to be met before we can live a satisfying life. He says that they're listed in no particular order except for the first, which he says is the most important, and that is the desire to be taken seriously. I sometimes think that feminism's entire theme is the desire of women to be taken seriously. One of the ways we indicate how seriously we as a society take someone is how much we pay them. The 17.2% pay gap between the average earnings of full-time working men and full-time working women is a clear message to women that we regard their efforts, their work, their achievements and skills as of lesser value, both literally and figuratively. Our aim in this lecture is to examine how this idea of women as naturally more suited to loving sacrifice than ambitious acquisition continues to allow us to fundamentally trivialise an entire gender. A good example of how this works is the fact that women GPs earn between 10 and 35% less than their male peers. This striking pay gap between workers with the same training skills and tasks is explained, apparently, by the different way female and male GPs practice medicine, described in the study that I'm quoting as the tears and smears method, charming uh, title. Female GPs spend longer with their patients and rack up fewer consultations than men. Female GPs arguably take their patients more seriously than they take their own income, while male GPs do the opposite, Taking others' needs more seriously than your own is an archetypal definition of love. We see more clear evidence of this in the way the feminised professions, teaching, nursing, HR, childcare, community care in general, are both underpaid and undervalued. The recent powerful win by community sector workers, 87% of whom are women, in their claim for equal pay, where they not only won a whopping pay increase of up to 25%, but forced Fair Work Australia to agree that the sector was underpaid because it was dominated by women, is not just an important acknowledgement, but forced us all to take systemic discrimination against women seriously for the first time. Indeed, it was heralded as the first decision of its kind anywhere in the world. The work these women do includes caring for the elderly at home or in nursing homes and for very young children as childcare workers. Traditional women's work, 
meant to be motivated by love rather than seen as serious and important tasks that should be paid for and valued. Until this landmark decision, in fact, it was almost like we resented having to pay for such work to be done at all. There remains an entrenched attitude that mothers should care for their own children and daughters for their elderly parents. When people mutter darkly about feminism destroying the family, it's just these kinds of dereliction of loving duty that they are referring to. As mother and daughter substitutes, therefore, we punish the female community sector workers by grudgingly paying them very little and fundamentally disrespecting the very real work involved in what they do. In fact, when the union announced its win, there was much tut-tutting in the media about the fact that this would send costs in the sector up and the people who would suffer would be working, wait for it, women. Not working parents or workers with elderly parents in general. As far as I know, many men have children and most of them have parents. Um, notice, just women. Because it was absolutely assumed that that's women's work. That's what women do. Emily Maguire, in her excellent essay, The Invisible Women Carers in Australian Families, quotes nursing historian Marie-Francois Collier as saying, care is at the very root of women's history, as it is around care that the main part of women's destiny is woven. Maguire argues that caring is seen as a moral chore or obligation more than it is seen as work. And there's a more insidious side to this moral obligation. As Maguire points out, carers, whether paid or literally doing it for love, cannot just walk off the job and leave their the person they're caring for to fend for themselves. The very young, the sick and the elderly, they tend, sometimes could literally die. Others in the overwhelmingly feminised caring professions also face this dilemma. Nurses, teachers and the above-mentioned community workers always make sure there are people in place to continue the care. They cannot simply down tools because they actually do care about the people they're looking after. So it's a neat catch-22. Despite encouraging signs like the survey I mentioned at the beginning of my talk and the courageous and stubborn campaign by community workers to have their work taken seriously as real work, this tendency to take the contributions of women less seriously than the contributions of men is not just something men do to women, it's also something women do to one another and to themselves. The new desire among many young women to take their husband's name is an interesting contradiction to the survey that indicates women would rather a promotion than a proposal. Or are the two not entirely unconnected after all, when I think about it? Assuming your husband's surname is a, is a hangover from a time when women were quite literally owned by men and had no legal individual identity at all, apart from as someone's daughter or someone's wife, Seemingly oblivious to its fundamentally sexist origins, young women are happily reinvigorating this tradition and arguing they're doing it for love. Pass me the bucket. <laughs> the trouble with this kind of love is that it is about subsuming your identity. Another symbol of how we still see women as not complete in and of themselves. The visceral power of this tradition is easily understood when you consider that while we can now mostly accept a woman keeping her own name and also those families who give their children hyphenated names perhaps, we're still shocked by the few men brave enough to take their wives' names. This is seen as literally unmanning them. A man's identity must never be sacrificed, but we almost expect a woman to give up hers to prove the seriousness of her love. It doesn't always work, however. Princess Diana's official title when she married the Prince of Wales was supposed to be the Princess Charles. 
As a commoner, she had no right to a royal identity except as a, his wife. Such was her star power. So seriously did the world take this deceptively shy and self-effacing young woman that she was never known by any other title than Princess Diana. Princess Michael of Kent, however, is not made of such stern stuff. Yet, just as in less exalted circles, it never works the other way around. A man is never expected to take his wife's name, however important she may be. It was never, ever suggested, for example, that Prince Philip be called Prince Elizabeth. <laughs> or Anthony Armstrong Jones become Prince Margaret. Again, men are always seen as individuals, and their identity taken seriously. Women are not. Women, it seems, not only can, but should do just about anything you ask them to for love. The sense many working women have that their role is illegitimate, Catherine touched on this, and must be justified and defended, is all about their sense that they are somehow neglecting their womanly duty to put their children ahead of their work. One of the reasons, among many others, that many dual-income families are attracted to private schooling, perhaps, is maybe explained by the idea that paying fees for your child's education allows working women to neatly combine their desire to work for money that being the only kind of work seriously valued, with their need to be seen as good and loving mothers. It's genius marketing. Hence the, I only work to pay the school fees. It neatly resolves the internal conflict. Perfect. Nevertheless, it is working women who expect to take time out when kids are ill or performing in concerts or under high pressure. It's common to see women taking a year off to help their children through final years exams, for example. It's not our Catherine, though. Um, I'll out you whenever I can, dear. Yeah, well, you haven't got the microphone now, so shut up. Um, but it's very unusual to see such behaviour from a father. It always infuriates me to hear a business magnate eulogised as someone who, despite working 80 hours a week, always put his family first. I'll get real. The only way men like this can work for such long hours and accumulate such wealth is by having a wife who actually puts the family first. Don't think we're for a moment dismissing the importance of love, however. We simply want to share it around a bit more with the blokes. In return, all we ask is they share a little more of the stuff that actually generates income. It is wonderful to see men with the smallest of newborns in st pouches strapped to their chests as they wheel trolleys around supermarkets or simply read the paper over a coffee in a cafe on a Saturday morning. They are the lucky recipients of partners who have gained enough confidence, thanks to feminism, in their right to sometimes put their own needs first. It's a kind of generosity to take sometimes and insist they get a morning off from childcare and so enable their male partner to begin building a real relationship with their children in the only way possible, and that is by doing some of the bloody work. I cannot bear it when someone tells me that their husband is babysitting. You can't babysit your own fucking children. <laughs> babysitting is a job and you get paid to do it, and if she's paying her bloody husband to sit the children, she should get out. In fact, we believe that the perspectives women have learned from their 2,000 years plus of being expected to do things for love is of enormous value. Though, warning here, we are wary of the discourse that eulogises women as intrinsically nicer than men. We don't believe that for a minute. We think the two sexes are just as capable of being as nice and nasty as one another. It's just that our experience and the expectation that society places upon the different genders, that's where the different experiences and the different perspectives come from. 
An example perhaps of what could be gained if we took women's different life experiences seriously can be seen in the really remarkable Finnish education system. Finland's education system, if you don't know about it, 40 years ago they did had an education system very much like ours, very hierarchical, very differentiated, private schools for the wealthy, public schools for the ones they didn't want, etc., etc. And they made a decision 40 years ago to change all that and what they decided to do was concentrate on equity and student wellbeing. They didn't look at academic excellence and rigour and measuring and you know, ranking every kid in, in the country. They went the other way. And in that time, those 40 years, they've gone from the bottom of the educational rankings to the absolute top, where they stay year after year, according to PISA comparisons. The interesting thing is, Pessy Salberg, who um, is the Director General of um, the agency that was right behind this, that it tells a story about how they often get American delegations coming to Finland from all over the world, people come, but Americans in particular, and they're very puzzled about this education system and how it performs so well when it doesn't do any of the things that, you know, are sort of held as being the kind of competitive, hard-edged, um, excellence-pursuing stuff, market-driven. He relates a story about a delegation asking a question, you know, what political powers were behind Finnish early childhood policies and the central place that well-being of students has in that country's schools? Salberg says the answer was short and simple. Women, he told them. The American delegation were told how gender quotas, at least 40% of each gender, in public boards, committees and councils have been in force in Finland since the 1980s. The Finnish parliamentarians who were responding to the American delegation, argued that unless there had been an equal representation of women in the Finnish legislature and every political and professional task force, that that country's advanced maternity and childcare laws and strong focus on wellbeing in school would never have come into being. By extension, if child wellbeing had not been regarded as a basic, the Finnish education system would never have evolved into today's success story. This is a really important point to me. In our slow journey towards taking women seriously, we're seeing that when you do, you also start to take other marginalised groups in society more seriously too. Partly because we start to value humanity, a kind of love, over power. Children's rights begin to be asserted so that hopefully the Jimmy Savills of this world will no longer get away with damaging and exploiting vulnerable children for their own sexual satisfaction. Taking women seriously means taking what they care about seriously too, like the right of rights of children. Taking women seriously means taking the feminine in general seriously. So it also means the fight for gay and lesbian rights gaining ground. As the work that women do gains status, and as much of it remains caring work, caring gains status too. We don't want to banish love as a motivator. What we want to do is break the crippling nexus which sees love divorced from money, as if love is somehow devalued by money. Perhaps that is the point. Not that women should give up being motivated by love, but that society should learn to take love so seriously that it realises just how money, much money it is actually worth and then pull its finger out and pay for it. Thank you very much. That was fantastic. Thank you both. Uh, you've all got microphones near you. You need to 
edge in to uh, ask a question and there'll be a little button there you can press and I think this is great. It's like, I think it's like the UN. So, <laughs> what a wonderful feeling of power. Um, who'd like to go first and, and jump in with either a comment or a question? Hey, I'm from the School of Maths and uh, we've had a sort of emails going backwards and forwards. Uh, and what happened is some some argy-bargy, but when the men wrote, there was no no response from the senior executives. But when the woman complains that she was being penalised, the head of discipline came around, knocked on the door, and said, "You're trying to start a war." <laughs> and don't know what the response to that is. What do you? And she, of course, turned around and said, "Hey, did you go and tell the other men exactly this in the same tone?" Why is it that I'm starting a war? I'm the fourth person to write, not the first one. Mm. So what do you do? Is, got, she, is she the only one? I mean, is she one, of, one woman in a team of, of men, are you saying? Or is, no, there's about five or six of us. Yeah. yeah. Not many. Yeah. I got told today that I was, you know, incredibly scary. And all the way through my career, people have said, oh, you know, they're unwilling to give you the job because they're scared of you. What? What? I mean, I'm five foot nothing, for God's sake. I've never done anything particularly scary in my whole life. Um, I don't know. I don't know what it is about a woman speaking up that seems to make their dicks disappear. <laughs> Shrivel. Yeah. Yeah. I think... I, look, I th I've, I've seen that. You know, I was... <laughs> Jane and I have been on the, on the circuit a bit, and I was on a panel this morning at a, shall we say, a large financial services company uh, in Sydney, and um, I was, was talking about these issues, and I just made some comment to the man next to me who runs a very large professional services firm, and he just bristled. You know, you, it, this, this topic makes men extremely uncomfortable. Um, I like to think it's because deep down they're quite guilty about the fact <laughs> they've actually been incredibly unfair. As Jane always says, um, we shouldn't um, expect men to wake up one day, slap themselves on the front and go, oh, let's share the power. <laughs> Gosh, we've been so unfair. Yeah. Ain't going to happen. But I, I do think, um, I, unfortunately, I've heard other stories similar to that. Um, women do, especially once you get into kind of those slightly more senior ranks, they're usually, you know, one out of, out of a group. So they're, they're token, uh, they're regarded as token. I mean, they're not. But, and also they, they get a lot of attention and scrutiny. Um, and that's the undeniable thing that goes on. And you know what else I think? I think that it's all about there's an unconscious expectation by a lot of men that women should defer to them. Mm. They would deny it. But I think that this is just something that they are so used to that is so often done. I think young women in particular suffer from it, that they are expected to defer. Um, and so when a woman doesn't defer, it's actually seen as, as so much more shocking because it's a change of a kind of unconscious norm. And remember that um, the woman, Catherine Walter, who was on the NAB board many years ago? Do you remember that? That was, I mean, I won't say too much, except that the background story, and not all of it came out clearly, and, um, and I've seen Cathy a few times. Um, I mean, she was just hung out to dry. That was just appalling behaviour. Um, so, you know, we know that women who stick to their guns, perhaps, you know, um, we're not condoning people being rude, but who just sort of, uh, you know, say this is how it is and speak bluntly, especially if they're female, um, do get punished a lot of the time. Doesn't mean you shouldn't keep doing it, though. Right. And if you have to have a war... Well, it just makes sure you've got some really good ammunition, I say. Do you think younger men um, are seeing the light more? Uh, my impression, 
is that they do. I think uh, middle-aged and older men are probably still clinging on to these old structures, but... Well, well, <laughs> I don't know. I hear them saying that, and Ooh. I understand that they probably do see the world differently, um, as indeed they should. But then I look at things in the book I went into, I couldn't resist looking at Facebook because when I was writing the book, it was led up to the IPO. And I'm looking at Zuckerberg, has no sinuous, he has one, Sheryl Sandberg, he's outstanding. Like, if you read her CV, she's just the most extraordinary woman. Um, She was the COO. They had no women on the board. There was this huge backlash when they went to the market and they did eventually... I'm really good of them, put Cheryl on the board. And I read the stats. There was a great article in the New Yorker around that time. Silicon Valley is appalling. Now, wouldn't you think you would look at a place of innovation with a lot of young people, admittedly, as someone said to me, yeah, but they're very nerdy. And I said, well, regardless. Um, but a lot, of, a lot of interesting stuff going on. Um, they're targeting younger people and so on. They're appalling. Mm. They're worse than the average. So I wonder, I wonder if it's the, the way that hierarchies are and business structures. They may go in with a different attitude and I wonder if they unfortunately then get corrupted by the system because the system is very clear very quickly. We do actually know that women are earning less a year after graduation in the workforce. It's not about when they hit the maternal wall. It happens earlier. Look, I think we also have to accept that in business people exploit their advantages, mm. and they will uh, exploit other people's weaknesses. And being female is seen as a weakness, so it will be used. Um, and I wish they were more honest about it sometimes. And I think that it really, in advertising, you're taught follow, follow the benefit, follow the benefit. And if you think about what happens when young women um, reach a time where they want to have children and they leave the workforce for a while, who benefits? Mm. How fantastic for all those young blokes who perhaps have been competing with them all the way. Then suddenly they all get marginalised. Excellent. There is no incentive for them to change it. Mm. It's not that they're nasty. If we were in their position, we'd do the same thing. We're just not. Mm. Question? Anyone else? Yes? I'd just like to make a comment. Um, it really annoys me when on the news they say that childcare are always safe for women. Yeah. Like the government, it's always safe for women. really been enjoying my Twitter conversations with men recently about what sexism and misogyny really is. Because they really know. Because they know so well. <laughs> they are telling me that I'm a silly little thing and I don't understand at all. I'm so pleased to get their wise counsel. But if you watched, um, if you watched Julia Gillard's speech, that was what got her going. It was yeah. when Tony Abbott Tried was to actually her. telling her what sexism was. I mean, she clearly was prepared to, to deliver yeah. something. Mm. She had the list of comments. But it was when he did that that she let loose, and that was quite obvious, yeah. That was a great line, wasn't it? Don't you. <laughs> not I now. will not be lectured on the Not now, not ever. By yeah. that man. <laughs> <laughs>
go down in history, that one. Yeah. <laughs> it is interesting to, to speculate what would have happened if Julia Gillard had ever referred to a male colleague as a loyal boy, like um, Abbott mm. did with, with mm. Bishop. You know? yeah. She's yeah. a loyal girl. girl. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 amazing, actually, the, the language that but is still used. The language, I think, and I've said this a couple of times, I think we've become desensitised over the last couple of years because we have a female Prime Minister and the level of vitriol around that. I think mm. we've all been warned. I know I could you know, include myself in that and I comment on this and I have written, you know, <laughs> to justify, I have written a few pieces about it, but I think that was why Anne Summers' piece was excellent. It was a circuit breaker. And she, when she pulled all of that together, you thought, she's absolutely right, this has gone beyond a joke. This is appalling. Um, what message is that sending to our daughters and our young women? I mean, it's... Oh, it's sending a really clear message yeah, and the sure message is. is this. Don't you aspire to be Prime Minister, girly, because this is what we'll do to you. That's what they're Very ugly reflection. Did you? Um, just uh, following on from the comments made before, I think it's really often very difficult for people to acknowledge their own privilege, and it's not just a matter when it comes to gender, but it's also class and ethnicity as well. And um, it seems to me that often when the focus is on disadvantage, you get a kind of response which is, oh, you're just um, asking for special favours, you're yes. just seeking... Um, you know, you know, the whole class problem and, you know, all these sorts of responses. And that's where I think it's really important that we focus attention on the structures of privilege and how it operates and how it benefits particular groups. Um, and also to see the intersections because some women are doing quite well compared to others. Mm. And there are some women who are facing uh, just different levels of disadvantage and we need to be sensitive to the differences across that. But I think by focusing less on the disadvantage but more on the structures of privilege, that may help to um, force some attention on mm. these issues. But I don't see a lot of focus on that. No. I mean, one of the things I do have a problem with, um, and it comes up quite, quite often actually, is that this is a white middle class um, agenda. And I completely reject that. Um, unfairness is not relative. Um, you know, it's not. And some of the, and one of the things I often say, because women say, oh, you're just talking about women in management, blah, blah, blah. The point is, until we have women, right, we would never have had a speech, that we would never have had the, the appalling, savage sexism that we've seen on, on the national stage, but we would never have had the speech calling it and saying, and then having the response from many of us in this country and internationally saying, actually, yeah, I recognise that because that happens to me all the time, wherever I am and at whatever level I'm at. Um, and in the book, I quoted um, the wonderful Abigail Disney, who is indeed of the Disney family, who's now a philanthropist and makes films about women in Africa uh, and places like Congo. And she said, Catherine B., I was talking to her about this, and she said, be under no illusion. I talk to women in the Congo where they're facing rape, um, poverty, unbelievable problems. She said, and their first and utter priority is leadership for women. Now, leadership for women is something that we can, we can all buy into, and that's, that's what we should be looking at as well. And that's, I guess that was why we wanted to tackle this whole issue of love and value and where that value is attached and what it means, because until women are in those positions where they can lead and make decisions and help influence, nothing will change. One, um, of, one of my favourite examples of why we need women at the decision-making table is right back when um, chloroform was for, first invented and doctors hailed it as a boon for birthing women. They said, this is a great idea because really women, you know, we've only had longer life expectancy than men for quite a short time and it was all to do with uh, childbearing, hygiene, exhaustion, you know, not being able to control how many pregnancies, etc., etc. And that's, there's a reason there are so many stepmothers in fairy tales. It's because mothers died. And... Um, 
When chloroform came, was invented, doctors said, oh, this will make a big difference to women's survival rates in um, uh, childbirth and we'll be able to, you know, get babies out and things which would otherwise kill them. And the churches immediately went, oh, no, 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 women must suffer in childbirth, it's Eve's original sin, this is ordained by God, you know, women must suffer, this is, this is a God thing, you know, it's, it's very reminiscent of the Republican uh, rhetoric about rape right now. And... Um, Fortunately, just for once, in you know, unbelievably coincidentally, the head of the Church of England at that time was herself a birthing mother of nine, eventually, Queen Victoria. And Queen Victoria said, you are fucking kidding me. Give me the chloroform and sod off, and it became completely okay for women to have pain relief in childbirth. Now, it's a funny example, but it gives you... Privilege does matter because those people get to change things. Mm. Yeah. And male oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Because I think um, many men don't realise the advantage they have no, in the exactly. workplace and how that operates, yeah. and that's what we need. Yeah. Yeah. Louis C.K. is very good with his uh, comedy about being a white man white man's problems and what it's like for white men. It's brilliant because it's it, very it really brings that to yeah. a head. Poor things. One thing um, I've found interesting with women's work is I did a few years research looking at the increasing trend um, for surrogacy arrangements and there's a real push on uh, to commercialise surrogacy and then women will be paid for bearing children for other people. It's really big in the United States We've got a lot of people going to India now to pay Indian women to bear children for them. And for me, I found this um, a, a real feminist issue in that I thought I could not possibly ask another woman to take that risk for me. I've had a lot of trouble getting people to actually consider that point of view or think it's a really serious issue. Mm. And um, it just doesn't seem to get talked about. We, we see lots of programs on TV about surrogacy and egg donation and how easy it is and women should get paid for doing it, or they, mm. they call it compensation. But I see this as a, a real future issue um, here in terms of what a lot of poor women will do for work. Mm. Like and donating organs. Yes. Yeah. yeah, it and is. And actually reminiscent of um, some of the... You know, I was saying to someone the other day, the Margaret wonderful Margaret Atwood novel, Ooh. The Handmaiden's Tale. Yeah. And I remember reading that, you know, when I was probably in my teens and just thinking, gosh, this is right out there, you know, yeah. but having fe female, you know, fertility yeah. as kind of a crucial issue in how the world survives and therefore mm. that the value that was put on mm. the women who were still fertile, not, not so far out no. in, in future anymore. No. So, no, yeah, so no. Interesting. You, you. Oh, no, the lady behind you, sorry. Just can you comment on so-called um, feminine and male traits, uh, personality characteristics, if you like? I'm interested in the fact that um, for men there might be shy women, shy men, you know, friendly bolshy men, and by and large I don't think it makes a huge amount of difference in their career progression. With women, um, I think there's an expectation that you're to become fairly sort of aggressive, and then there's a acknowledgement that now they get it, you know, they get how they're supposed to behave, they're no longer sort of teary or sensitive or... I'm um, just interested in your comment on that, that um, there is that expectation. Uh, yeah, I think it's uh, quite interesting. It's, I think it's very tough being a young woman in the workplace. I think there's a number of things that happen because we, 
Girls do very well at school. They do incredibly well at university. Australian women are the best educated in the world, number one in the world for education, participation and achievement. Most highly educated women in the world. Funny about we never talk about that when we talk about productivity gains, what we're doing with those highly educated women. But then they go out into the workplace thinking that it's all feminism's, you know, old hat. They can go and be universe builders, etc., etc. And then, of course, they, it gets hard. They suddenly find that, that things aren't unfolding the way they thought they would, that uh, working hard doesn't cut it, that coming up with creative ideas doesn't cut it. You know, there's all this stuff. I spent a lot of my career scraping young women off the floors of the toilets of the advertising agencies in which I worked because they were sobbing. They never cried in the office. They were always in the ladies' loo. There was a huge use of tissues in the ladies' loo. Just being bullied um, and just disrespected, I think, particularly, not taken seriously and put down. It's interesting what you said about the war thing, because I think there is, a, there is still a view that because women are the subordinate culture, uh, it's less risky mm. to bully them, to put them down, to disrespect them, that it will be harder for them to have any power to come back to you. Um, and so I think... The teary thing has become a real problem. And as you get older in the workplace, well, I sometimes think I was incredibly fortunate spending the first 30 years of my career in advertising creative departments which are full of uh, very uh, insecure, witty, um, not very nice men um, and having to learn to deal with it. Because it doesn't matter what they toss at me now, it's nowhere near as bad as that. Um, so I'm not sure. Women do have to get tougher in a way. You have to learn to bat back. Um, and there's not much quarter given if you can't. And it's interesting about young men. I think they get protected a lot more. They certainly, what I used to watch was the boss would pick on some young man and go, he's the one I'm grooming for success. They'd often identify with them as their younger self. That never happens to young women. And so you have to fight hard for everything you get. I think we end up tougher than they do because of that. Um, and maybe being an outsider in the end makes you a better leader because you've got a broader view. A lot of the people we have heading things up at the moment, this isn't gender related, this is about privilege, it's what you were saying, is that they are, they've had a very one note existence. They only know quite a narrow way of looking. And I think we saw in the GFC the results of that. Do you think that women who choose to stay at home, but certain men think they're disrespected as well, when they go out in the community, there's a lot of they always were disrespected. Always. My mother t tells the story about in the 50s, and she was a stay-at-home mother, and she tells a lovely story about how she sat at a dinner party and this man was eulogising women and how ethereal and marvellous, and they couldn't really go to work because that would spoil their special sensitivity and their remarkable, you know, intuitive, you know, kind of grace, and you know, they, that needed to be nurtured and protected, blah, blah, blah. And my mother, when he paused for breath, she turned to him and she said, well, that's all very well, but how come it's always me that's on my knees scrubbing the toilet? Mm. <laughs> and so they were always disrespected. That hasn't changed. Remember, um, there was a book called Dick for a Day, and a lot of women were asked what they would do if they had a dick for a day, and Jermaine Greer said she'd pee all over the toilet and make her brother clean it up. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
and after. I think, yeah, I think that, look, I think that too about um, the stay-at-home, you know, um, and this whole sort of mummy wars thing, which actually we haven't heard as much about lately because no. it's ridiculous. But isn't it interesting to, to observe that as our economy now depends on self-funded retirees and so on, we're very happy to hang out a whole lot of women who've sacrificed for love, given up, you know, maybe working, maybe they did it, I mean, they may well have been, but they're encouraged to do it. This is the other thing I find really interesting, watching a number of friends over the years where the husband really wants them to stay. They, he wants the handmaiden there to do everything for him. Um, and then, you know, should the marriage break up or whatever, the, the woman ends up with no income, with no superannuation. Who's the victim there? So I always say to, to young women, think very, very, very carefully about your future in all its areas. You know, your health, your financial health, your well-being, and you do need to look at that as an individual rather than as a, you know, a supplementary part. Grown-ups earn their own money and do their own housework. Yeah. Yeah. If someone else is earning your money, you're in some ways being infantilised. Someone else is cleaning your dirty laundry, you're in some ways being infantilised. Mm. OK, we've that, got two... Um, well, and then we'll... Yeah. Guys, I never drink. <laughs> <laughs> that um, raises the possibility that we're at a kind of historic moment where there's opportunities that can be fought with. We're certainly going to have long battles, but just as in the 70s when Claire Burton was yeah. starting to think through these issues, we had that generation of women who had surreptitiously snuck back into the workforce before the official second wave of feminism hit the press. Um, now we've got an ageing population and a growing awareness that we're going to need to professionalise care and yeah. that love and money are not incompatible. I guess the question is, how do we seize that moment? Mm. It's a very uh, interesting point that you make. Um, thank you, I may steal that and add that <laughs> to the forthcoming lectures. Um, I think one other thing that's happening which is really interesting is the last untapped market is women over 50. And the reason is that women over... This is the first generation of women over 50 ever in the history of the world who have mostly worked. And so they have their own money. They aren't asking their husbands for housekeeping. It's their money. They've earned it. Suddenly, marketing's kind of turning onto this and going, oh, my God. And purchasing power is a kind of power. So there is a change of orientation, which I'm finding very interesting watching this. And also I keep telling women, because we still do this stupid thing when we go on about how bad it is to age, we don't get periods anymore. There is no downside to that. Um, is that actually the female human is the only living creature on earth that survives beyond its reproductive capacity. The only, not the female male, the, the human male, the, fem, the human female, the only creature on earth. We should be blasting this from the rooftops. This makes us unbelievably special. And I've got a feeling there's this big move, and I think social media is giving older women, younger women, lots of women, a chance to say these kinds of very uh, subversive things. But I, but I also think that, I mean, the same point really, but I think that access to, to money, mm. uh, to earn your living um, at that age means that, because I just, I've seen all, the, all of my friends go through this with ageing parents in particular. Um, we went through it. I have two brothers and a sister, and when both my parents got ill and died, it was absolutely shared. So there was none of that 
that, you know, the, the, the girls will look after the parents who are wasn't going to happen in my family, was it? Um, but also, I think that women will, will increasingly flex those muscles and just say, no, the obligation doesn't rest with me. And eventually, we'll possibly get to the point where childcare isn't always seen as the woman's responsibility or coming out of the woman's income, which is, is really, you know, that's the way it's calculated. So I think, I think we might actually be able to seize that moment because a few things are occurring at the same time. There's a confluence there. So. And as the need increases yes. and as you get... Yep. Please, more decisions like the recent one changing the pay structure for care workers. You may, in fact, find men moving into exa other forms exactly of care right. work than nursing. Exactly right. And then the pay will go up. Yes, yep, because absolutely. once something no longer... It's the very interesting, um, mm. as we all know. And so the status areas, will go up. Exactly. Once the men start moving, we start Sad. to them differently. OK, you have to listen to me. I'm a very scary person. I've had a six-foot man who used to be a professional sportsman tell me that. <laughs> um, two things. Once, it's the moment you hear the phrase, I love women, yeah. you know oh. you are talking to a sexist. Yeah, you mm -hmm. do. Absolutely he's, agree. Yeah. He's divided love, up the world. Oh, but, yeah. He's <laughs> divided up the world into people who are like me and women. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Human beings and women. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> And the second is, it was very disappointing to hear our sort of most famous feminist talking about our female prime minister and just talking about her clothes. I know. <laughs> her, clothes, her clothes, I could just about put the bottom, the size of the bottom. But, I mean, Jermaine, she has a moments, doesn't she? <laughs> but, but can I just say, in, in Jermaine's defence and in all women's defence, oh. I don't... I've never seen women as an amorphous lump and I've never seen the necessity for women to be more supportive or nicer to other women than men are to one another. That is a sexist assumption in a way. You know, Jermaine's an absolute loose cannon and God bless her for it. She will not conform to what other people think she should do. And in the end, that's the point. It isn't that there's an acceptable way of being or we all need to support one another. It's nice when we do, but we ought to do it because we really want to, not because there's some sort of feminist compulsion on us to do so. Yeah. Um, well, she I, doesn't play by the rules. No, and, that's, and I, I like mean, it. Yeah. I, I don't always agree with her, but I don't have to agree with her. It's, it, I, I want women to be just as varied, nasty, devious, power-hungry, miserable, surprisingly delightful, you know, as, as men are. We don't categorise men the way we categorise women. Mm. I was arguing the other day, there's no such thing as a men driver. Like, no one says, oh, that's a man driver. Nobody. And as soon as, you know, that's, and that's because we don't see them as an amorphous lump. We don't see them as representative of one another. Do we say men are their own worst enemies? I Never. Don't, I don't think so. Never heard it. Never heard it. Mind you, they are. No. <laughs> I think we'll wrap it up. And on behalf of RMIT and ATN, thank you so much. You've been wonderful, Jane and Catherine. Oh, and we have presents. Oh, oh. We'll work for presents. <laughs> <laughs>